You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in Psalm 140. Heavenly Father, I just ask now as we turn our hearts and our minds towards your wonderful word that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that we would just see the truth and we would see your Son revealed more gloriously in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last few Psalms that we've been studying, we've really been focusing on the sufficiency of God the absolute sufficiency of God. We've seen God as the object of his people's praise, the source of the everlasting mercy. Do you remember that psalm we read where after every verse it says, for his loving kindness is everlasting, for his loving kindness is everlasting, 26 times I believe it was. We've seen Jehovah as the God of mercy, we've seen him as a God of judgment, and last week we saw him particularly as the God who is all-powerful and who is all-knowing. And now we're going to move into Psalm 140. The next few psalms, actually, the next couple of psalms, change pace. The focus now is not so much upon God. We are back upon man at this point, and in particular, the utter helplessness of man in the midst of all his troubles. Now, I think this is done purposely, because as many of us can probably testify, these two thoughts are very much connected. The point is that in our helplessness, in our brokenness and our fallenness and in despair or whatever we may be, we are actually called to appeal even more to the absolute sufficiency of God in those situations. So there's a definite link between us and God in that situation there. And in Psalm 40, we are again going to see David in a desperate situation. How many times have we seen that over in the Psalms, that he always seems to be in some sort of trouble, some sort of situation, and he's just crying out to the Lord, and we're going to see that again now. So the Psalm begins, it's really a prayer for rescue. Um, Let's just read the first five verses together. It says, Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips, Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to trip up my feet. The proud have hidden a trap for me and cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set snares for me, Selah. David often had need to pray a prayer such as this in his life. Now, many of us today sitting here, we may not have had a definite need to pray save me from violent men who are trying to attack me in that sense like David did here, but many of us will probably be able to testify to the effect of evil people, brokenness in this world. We've seen it in relationships, we've seen it in either the way we've been treated at some point or the way we've treated others. These are all symptoms of a broken and fallen world. But David knew it in a very personal way. Obviously he had Saul, didn't he? chasing him across the wilderness, trying to kill him and entrap him for that time. He met the character, do you remember Doeg the Edomite, that vicious man that Saul used to slaughter the priests of Nob at that time? He was also after David. So David needed to be hidden and he needed to be rescued at various points and he always sought the Lord. Reminds me of, there's a story about Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer, when he was at the Diet of Worms at the council, the church councils by the Pope, and he refused to recant his written works and his faith. And that's where he made that famous statement, my conscience is captive to the word of God, here I stand, I can do no other. After that, he was already excommunicated at that time, and then he also had a price put in his head. So basically he was a fugitive in that sense. And whilst 
at that meeting, it was agreed that he was allowed to travel home safely. Uh, word on the underground, if you could say, was that he was not going to actually arrive home safely. He was going to be arrested en route and everything that went with that. Hearing this, he had a friend, a man called Prince Friedrich, Friedrich the Great, he was known as. He actually staged a sort of plot to save Martin Luther, whereby he hired five bandits, or friends of his, but they were looking as bandits, and they actually staged a kidnapping of Martin Luther. And they, by doing that, it obviously looked like Frederick the Great had nothing to do with it, being an upstanding citizen. It looked like Martin Luther was attacked by bandits, but these people actually brought him to Frederick the Great's castle in Wartburg, where he stayed hidden for 10 months. And in that time, he grew a beard, he didn't wear his usual clothes, he went by a different name, and many people think that that may have been a low time in his life. Obviously, for him it was. He didn't enjoy hiding out. But in those 10 months, he translated the New Testament into German. That German New Testament is probably one of the most influential works in the Protestant Reformation. And he did that in those 10 months. So it was during that time. However, at the end of these 10 months, he was pretty bored at this point of being held. Although his friends advised him to stay, he headed back to Wittenberg, to sort out what was going on there. And his elector feared, his, his people who were charged with protecting him, feared that they would no longer be able to protect him outside the confines of the castle. And he wrote these words to them. He said, I come under far higher protection than yours. Nay, I behold that I am more likely to protect your grace than your grace to protect me. He who has the strongest faith is the best protector. You see, Luther at this point, I believe, had learned to be independent of all men in his needs. He knew who it was he was serving. He cast himself upon his God. And in some ways, that parallels, I'd imagine, how David is feeling at this time in his life, again in danger, again having to run, but again crying out to the Lord. Now, in these first few verses, we also learn a lot about what's called evil men. And this is something we, we have to talk about. Notice it says evil men and violent men, almost used as synonyms there. Evil and men and violent men are often the same. It says they devise evil things in their hearts. I mean, you think about that. They devise evil things in their hearts. Why? Because their hearts are evil. Matthew 15, verse 18 to 20, Jesus said, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and slanders, and these are that which defile men. Again, in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. From his mouth, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And we know from the New Testament over again, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that the days are evil. Writing to the Philippians, he said that they live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Writing to the Galatians, he says that we live in this present evil age. And what are they getting at here? Basically, they're getting at the fact that the majority of people are separated from God. Sin reigns. Man is fallen. We are broken in this world. It says the God of this world has blinded their eyes that they might not see. And thus, they can do his bidding. We're separated from God. Now, this is a firm reminder for us, too, that we should not be too comfortable here in this world. It is a reminder that our earthly successes, if we can call them that, are only ever going to be fleeting. They are never going to come into the world beyond with us. Only the things that we invest into his kingdom will be invested into eternity. 
It says their hearts are evil, and then it says in the next verse, end of verse 2, look, they continually stir up wars. And I think this is a fascinating the way this is phrased here. Because of their evil separated hearts, they stir up wars. The, the idea here being expressed is that um, it's related to the concept of an evil heart, is that they attract and cause strife and conflict and war wherever they go, because that is ultimately what sinful man does. And we don't need to just take the Bible's word for this. We can simply look back through history and you can see that this is true without an absolute doubt. Ask yourself, why is it that mankind has never been able to find peace? It's always been at the top of the list of great rulers' demands and wants. You know, it's always, what do you want? World peace, world peace. It's always a demand that people want, but yet it's so elusive no one's ever found it. Not rich governments, not poor governments, not those with massive armies or small armies, not religious nations or non-religious nations. Whether you're a third world or a first world country, advanced technological societies or ancient armies of old, mankind has never been able to reach that state of peace they dream of. Why? This is the very simple answer. Man's heart is separated from God. It is evil. This is the truth of this statement here. It's a tough teaching, but history proves it. It says they sharpen their tongues as a serpent. The poison of a viper is under their lips. So David continues this theme. He focuses on the, the, the venom of the tongue. We've talked many, the Bible talks so much about the evil that words can do to us. Remember in the book of James, he says your words basically can burn a whole forest down. They're that damaging. They're the thing that actually cause huge amounts of conflict and strife. That's why Jesus said, you know, when it comes out of your mouth, it's a true betrayal of what is in your heart. That's why there's so many guidelines about how we should speak as believers. Words are powerful. Look at the way Paul uses this, in fact, this exact verse in his great treatise to the book of Romans when he's talking about the brokenness of man. Chapter 3, Romans, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He says, Their throat is an open grave, their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips. That's an exact quote from the psalm we're studying right here. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's the New Testament, that's the book of Romans, when he's making that blanket explanation that no one is righteous enough to come to God on their own merits. That's the whole point of this. When I say people are evil, it means that they're separated from God and they have nothing in themselves that can make God accept them. Accept what Paul is explaining here, that one day Christ came and he would make a way that we would rely on the righteousness that is given to us by God. But it's not ours, it's his. Now notice all of these themes in Romans that we've read in uh, our psalm. It talks about the language, the mouth, their tongues they keep deceiving. It talks about the feet, their actions that flow from their words. And what is the outcome? It says destruction and misery are in their paths. And then it says there is no, they have not known the path of peace. There's no knowledge of the path of peace. That's the main factor that we're getting at here. David knew the path of peace. It rested with the Lord. We know the path of peace. We have it in the New Testament, in the Gospel, quite clearly. We have peace with God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Men do not know, if they're separated from God, the path of peace. Continually striving, continually looking for something, whether it's physical peace or inner peace, they will have none of it until they rest in the Prince of Peace. This is the Gospel. It also says there is no fear of God 
before their eyes in the end of that Romans chapter. And this is why I believe you see so often throughout the Bible it is said that the fear of God is the very beginning of knowledge. The very first thing that we start with on this path to peace, an understanding of who God is and an awe and respect that comes from that as we seek him. This is why we give people the light of the gospel. We turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. The gospel is the only thing that can lead people on that path of peace. But also, back in Psalm 140, we learn much more about the tactics of the enemy by looking at these people. Some of these things are fascinating. Look, it says, who have purposed in their heart, this is um, verse 4, who have purposed to trip up my feet, and it goes on to say they've hidden a trap. The next section says they've spread a net and they've set a snare. And you might notice all of these pictures, all of these images are related to entrapping someone, tripping them up, hunting, basically. And this gives us a very good picture. They are expressions of specific evil intent to ensnare and entrap David, ultimately to entrap the Lord's people. There's no point to the devils, there's no point fighting those who are already working for him in that respect. He fights against those who have been taken out of his power by the power of the gospel and placed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he says, after he's laid down these heavy truths, he says that little word, Selah. He says that a few times throughout this psalm. And the idea is, take a moment, think about the seriousness and the truth of these things that he's saying, and think on them. Give, have a pause and a reflection on them. And I think we need to be able to do that ourselves in our own lives. How do we respond in similar situations or when we have a similar realisation? Just as this whole psalm does, David's example is what we must do. He simply prayed to the Lord. He had no solution in himself, he prayed to the Lord. We need to make sure we have the whole armour of God. We've heard of the armour of God so many times, uh, in, if you've been in church any amount of times, but I'm still absolutely convinced we haven't quite understood everything that Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6. We have the belt of truth. That is, we make sure that we are grounded in God's truth, we make sure that we are not being manipulated by lies, by outside influences, by things that would lead us from the path of peace. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We are confident that our righteousness comes from him and him alone, not from us. Our feet are prepared with the gospel of peace. Now, this is the path of peace that he's referring to. The path of peace for an evil and restless world is the gospel. We have the shield of faith. We know that the one in whom we have placed our faith is easily able to defeat the arrows of the evil one, it says. The helmet of salvation. The knowledge that we are his. We are his people. We are blood brought. We are adopted into his kingdom. We are his children. That is the helmet of salvation. And thus we fear God and not man. And then we have the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the offensive weapon, that vital tool that we all need for navigating through this world. But notice in Ephesians 6, the oft-forgotten final piece of the armour of God that is never listed in the list as it should be. It says in verse 8, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Constant prayer. And this is really, I believe, the key to having the operation of all those other pieces of armour work. 
we pray for ourselves and we pray, it says, also for our, our other brothers and sisters in this world. Let's look at verse 6. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not promote his evil device that they may not be exalted. Now look at how he prays here, his first word. I said to the Lord, you are my God. The confidence he has in prayer is based on his personal relationship with the Lord. And we see so many people praying, don't we, throughout these different religions that we have in this world that don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. They're either learnt prayers or they're prayers prescribed by priests or by religious bodies, but they don't flow out of a personal relationship. David, I believe, was different. His confidence is that he could say, you are my God, you and you alone, Lord. And this is in contrast to all the other surrounding nations that had their other gods at this time that were being worshipped. He knew that Yahweh was the one true God. To him he gave all the honour, all the praise, all the glory. He gave his whole life, he put his whole confidence in him. He trusted him in times of distress. He asked and cried out for deliverance to the Lord and the Lord alone. You see, the enemy will often put things in our lives that seeks to distract us from that confidence, to shake that confidence that we have in the Lord. And he will put things in our lives that seek to use our time that we would not seek him and we would not seek his face. David knew this. He placed everything he had in the Lord. Notice it says, give ear, O Lord. He knew that the Lord was the God who hears prayer. How many times do we see this in the New Testament? The Lord hears our prayers. And the word there is supplications. It's actually an interesting word. It's, it's related to the word Hebrew word for grace, actually. Basically, prayer is a plea for divine grace. That is what it is. We come to him on the basis of his grace and his mercy. And then look what he cries out. O oh God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation. Again, a wonderful phrase. It's the only time you'll ever find it put quite like this in the whole Bible. God is the strength of my salvation. He knows that the Lord is his strength. He knows that the Lord is the one who upholds him with that righteous right arm. It's the Lord that keeps him, the Lord who delivers him, the Lord who sustains him, guides him and rescues him at this time. We don't do this in our own strength. It doesn't matter how strong we are, sooner or later that strength will fail. Many of you have probably experienced that when you feel like you've been trying to live your Christian life in your own strength and you get caught up in this complete cycle of failure, confession and failure and confession. We do that so often, don't we? David must have known that. You, you, you read his life, he definitely knew that. We all know that, but we must understand that it is the Lord who has the strength. Listen to these words of Isaiah the prophet. He says, Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. He is understanding is inscrutable, and he gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We draw our strength from him. And if we don't, sooner or later, our strength will fail us. And then we'll have to cry out to him in distress. He says, you have covered my head in the day of battle, back in the Psalm 140. Uh, and the, the word battle there, it could be translated armour. The, the idea is that David knew that you know, he'd been in a lot of battles. We've seen many of them throughout the scriptures. He knew that throughout those battles, the Lord was his armour. The Lord was his strength. 
Do you remember when David, famous Bible story, when he faced Goliath and that small bit that we get before this story where Saul tried to put David in his armour and he's obviously standing there, this armour's too big and he's, he, he basically says, I can't wear this, it's not tested. As in, it's not sure, I, haven't, I don't know what it is, I can't rely on it, I don't know, I'm not using it, basically is what he says. We don't use the world's armour in that respect. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. We use the armour that the Lord provided us, those things we just went through in Ephesians 6. We pray for those things. David said it's not tested. And he then took the armour off and he went out to face Goliath. And you know the story, the Philistine Goliath says, am I a dog that you come to me with stones? And then David said, you come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom, I, whom you have taunted. And it's an amazing scene, it must have been. And at the end of that bit of narrative, it says that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into your hands. The Lord does not deliver by sword or spear. He delivers actually by faithfulness. That, that's it. That's all he really requires. That was David. All he knew, he needed the Lord, and he picked up those stones, and the Lord did the rest. He knew too well that he needed to trust the Lord in those difficult circumstances, in the face of evil men, and Goliath probably being <laughs> one of the most evil men there. He prays that their plans would not prosper, or that they would not be exalted. Look at verse 9, please. As for the head of those who surround me, may the mischief of their lips cover them, May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into fire, into deep pits from which they cannot rise. May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. Now, don't be put off. Obviously, this is strong poetic language, very common in the Hebrew Psalms and Hebrew literature, usually looking to make a point. The idea that is being expressed here is what we would call boomerang justice. That's one term that scholars talk in. It's the, it's the idea that these evil men are intending something to happen to someone else, but sooner or later this usually ends up happening to them. It comes from the principle in Obadiah 15, the day of the Lord draws near on the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. The classic example, if you need an example from the Old Testament, is from the book of Esther. Haman, that evil man who wanted to destroy the Jews, and he picked on that Jewish man Mordecai so much that he built this gallows that he was going to hang him on. But by the end of the story, you see that it's not in fact Mordecai that is killed on the gallows, it's Haman who is hung on his own gallows that he built for someone else. That's the principle that's being expressed here. Now, I believe in the New Testament, we don't actually pray like that because Jesus says we don't repay evil for evil. We, ha we actually have a higher standard that Christ has shown to us in that respect. But it's the, it's the principle of justice that actually David is praying for here. He wants the Lord to uphold justice for the evil person. He goes on in verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the justice for the poor. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell in your presence. Now, he ends this psalm, and I know we're going to finish a bit early tonight, but I didn't want to put the next one in because it's a little bit longer and there's a lot more in it. He says, I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the justice for the poor. So he ends this psalm with a great expression of confidence in the character of God. And a man who's praying like David here, he must have confidence in the character of God. You see, you, you can't really have a prayer like this without that. He knows that God is a God of justice. Remember it says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He will. And David knew it. 
He didn't hope for it, he knew it. That's an emphatic word there in the, in the Hebrew. And this is the confidence that we also have in the Lord. And this is a good way, if you've ever had a conversation with someone, if you've been witnessing to someone, or you meet someone from... It's usually people who are, if I could say, Christianized, as in they've probably had some church background, they've been maybe within church, around church people for a long time, maybe a, a really long time, and you're talking to them, and you ask, say you get onto the subject and you ask, you know, do you know you're going to be with the Lord when you die? Or do you know, do you know the Lord even? And they answer with those words, yeah, I hope, I hope so. Like as soon as you hear those words, you know that they haven't understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it says you can know. That's, we know his atonement is completely adequate, that we can have full assurance that we will be with him when we put our life into his hands. And when people say that, it, it really just betrays, not always, there's no definite rule, but it, it's usually a warning sign that this person knows about Jesus Christ. They might know about some things to do with the religion, but they don't know Jesus Christ in the way that David here can say, I know that the Lord. And we can say, I know that the Lord, because we have even more revelation about the Lord than David did. We have the full revelation that we saw in the person of Jesus Christ, and this is amazing. So we can say on many things, we know. We have that security if we've placed our faith in him. It's a good way to sort of navigate conversations. He knew the upright and the righteous would be dwelling in the presence of God. And this is the ultimate picture it's probably the end of all of our picture, to be frank. If we're in the Lord, we know that one day we'll be dwelling in the presence of the Lord. And that is really the greatest future that we could ever hope for, that we could ever long for. And it's that that motivates most of our service, that we will get to walk with God. We will get to be with him in that sense. So as we take a step back now, when we see evil around us, and you do see a lot in the world today, more and more it seems to be that you know, we call evil good. And you know, we know that verse from Isaiah where it says that we get things completely backwards in this world we see evil around us and often we see it even in ourselves sometimes don't we let's not put <laughs> let's not pretend we're better than anyone else but what do we do in these situations simply we have to do what David did we turn to the Lord in prayer we cry out to him and then we have confidence in his deliverance for us because that's what the blood of Christ purchased amen let's pray well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, just for this short psalm, Lord, and the truths that you have within it. We know there are often things that are heavy, Lord, on our hearts, but they still come from you. We need to digest them, Lord. We need to see them in the light of Christ. And I pray now that we would meditate on these things and we would just give you thanks, Lord, that you are the great deliverer and that we can cry out. We know that you're just, you're holy, you're also merciful, Lord, and you've saved us. So we thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.